Hello everyone, my name is Reese Karlinski and this is Young History, episode 105 on Azerbaijan. The capital of this country is Baku, and the name Azerbaijan has its origin based on two major theories. The first is that the Persian word Azer means fire, and Bajani kind of translates to protector, so this would be the land of fire guardians, and that would make sense because this land is nicknamed the land of fire. But the other theory is that it is named for the Persian satrap, Atropades, and he named this land after himself to Atropatani. However, it is also believed that Atropades also means protector of fire, so they kind of both correlate to that fire thing. And then people believe that when you have put the word Atropatani through different Turkic languages, and eventually through the language that becomes Azerbaijani, you get the term Azerbaijan as the translation. Lots of theories up in the air, but this is what we're kind of with right now. Azerbaijan has two distinctions for its people. People called Azerbaijani refer to anyone who is a citizen or a long-term resident of the nation, and the term Azeri refers to people of ethnic descent from Azerbaijan. This means they are a people of Turkic descent and specifically within the Caucasus that make up Azerbaijan. And another surprising fact is that the largest Kentucky Fried Chicken in the world, KFC, is actually in the capital of Azerbaijan, in Baku. It's literally a two-story building, which is crazy because it's like the most American thing ever. And, you know, if it wasn't going to be in the United States that the biggest one is, I would have lost thousands betting on it being in the Caucasus regions near Central Asia. Interesting. And another fact is that it is one of the only Shia Muslim countries on Earth. But Muslim culture here is special because... It is more as a cultural thing than it is a religious thing when it comes to the government. When it comes to the way people practice their day and handle their actions, they deeply represent common Muslim practices. But this nation is very secular, and many practices that are based on religion, such as women being forced to wear hijabs and other traditional practices, are not present in Azerbaijan. So yes, that gets us to where we get to the beginning here, and we're just going to roll right into it. Azerbaijan is a country that gets washed over all the time, unless we're talking about some of the wars that are happening there or have happened there. But other than that, people can't tell me a thing about the history. I couldn't up until recently as well. So we're going to get right into this, and we're all going to learn together. So just want to say thank you all so much for being here again. And my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History, and this is Azerbaijan. You guys have a good one. Our origins begin in the ancient, ancient, pre-Neolithic, all that times, all the way back 300,000 years ago. The actual origins of the first people coming into this land are very unknown, but there have been remains of humans found in a cave called Azok that may be as ancient as 300,000 years old. So going way back, this is one of archaeologists' earliest claims to human life being present anywhere. And that's huge because we're continuously pushing that date farther and farther back of when the first humans were walking around. And right now it is around this three to 400,000 years ago mark. And that's just crazy. And, you know, they found jawbones and a few tools in this cave that can be dated that time. Just incredible how long life has been here. And this nation has seen many different groups throughout time. The most popular now is the Azeri, which are the most populous to this day, but they form far later on in the history. But some of the ones that have been around to some degree in its earliest times would be the Lesgins and the Avars, who are both kind of semi-Turkic nomadic people groups. And they're all over Eurasia, especially the Avars who spread all the way to Rome and other things of that region. 
because of the clashes they had throughout their history, and it's very unique. So that rolls into more semi-recent history where we kind of get more developed people groups, and that would be right around the 800s BC, which is when the Caucasian Albanians and the Scythians actually make home in what is today Azerbaijan. And the Caucasian Albanians is kind of a general term used to describe the different lands that were here throughout different ruling periods from when the Romans were in power across east of the Levant in the Middle East. This goes on for quite a while. So speaking about these Albanians, they actually formed their own city-states as independent regions from the rest of the empires in the region. These Albanians have zero connection to the ones in the Balkans. They're just named this for their skin tone and the culture they had at the time. And the Scythians that also arrived around this time were a very fearsome warrior people group that created the Scythian Empire and expanded throughout Central and Western Asia. And then after this would be a much more recognizable people group, and that would be the Achaemenid Persians. They took over this region under the leadership of Cyrus the Great in 550 BC. This led to Persian culture being spread and taking root here very heavily. The satrapy of Atropatane was established by the leader also known as a satrap, named Aturapetes, right around 300 BC. And a satrapy is kind of like a province under a ruler, and that ruler is known as a satrap, just so you guys know. And he was actually famous for making great relations between these Caucasus villages and towns and empires, whatever you want to call them, with Alexander the Great, who had just crushed his way through all of Persia. Next were the Parthians, who established administrative centers, military outposts, and many trade routes throughout the region, including Azerbaijan and the city of Nisa, was a port city on the Caspian Sea, which connects to Azerbaijan in the east. And a major figure that comes after this is Urnayr. He was a king that inherited the land and had a lack of power when he ruled, but a major thing he did bring was the conversion of Christianity to the Atropatane region, and this happened around the 300s CE. The Sasanian Empire brought Persian Zoroastrianism as well as fire temples to honor the beliefs of the new empire, and this is where that early claim to be in the land of fire comes from not only because of the pure dryness and all that of the region but because of fire temples and things worshiping fire being created by the persians at this time and zaranastrianism was very influential as now daily practices that were common in persia were now being seen in the early azari and the militarization of the sassanids introduced the region to a lot of investments And the biggest one that was, was that there's a lot of benefit in investing in your military, and this goes on for a long time, even to the modern history. After this, Islamic caliphates moved into the region and saw the rule of some famous ones, including the Rashidun, Umayyad, and Abbasid caliphates. Many cultural changes came from these new leaders, but none of them were as important as the introduction of Islam that came with these leaders. And then in 945, the Rus invaded from Kievan Rus. They took the Black Sea route to get to this region. And then they smashed their way through it. They did not actually take over the land, but they just plundered it for its loot and spoils. And that would be right before the arrival of the Seljuk Turks, who actually came and established their empire over this region in the early 1000 CE. They brought an early Turkic language that is still used today as the basis for Azerbaijani, because Azerbaijani is its own language separate from Russian, Armenian, or any of the other Turkic ones that are in this region. The Seljuk Turks encouraged a very Persian culture, which can be seen in the architecture or in more throughout Azerbaijan. And it would also be during this time that the Oghuz and Median Turkic tribes would move into the land as the true predecessors to the Azeri, and they would come in from the steppes near the countries of Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, all that. They would come across the land that is near the Caspian and come right into the Caucasus Mountains to influence the culture. And it would be the racial interactions between the Persians 
and these new Turkic groups and the Seljuk Turks, all these different groups would eventually become what is considered an ethnic Azeri. And they would now live in this land until the modern age as their culture forms throughout time. And then the 1200s, the Mongols actually invaded. They pillaged and torched the land as they rolled through it on horseback. And then the rule of Ogadai Khan occurred. And he was the successor to Genghis Khan that actually expanded the empire to its farthest reaches, which included the Caucasus. And the damage from these invasions were literally, you can't even categorize how bad it was. But one of the worst areas it was was in the region of Shirvan, which did not recover for over a century as it was literally raised to the ground by the invasion of the Mongols. But history did not let up easy on these people as Tamerlane invaded the region next. Tamerlane is a Turkic Mongol leader who is famous for his brutality, the way he, very similar to the Mongols, just marched through lands, smashed his way through, and did anything he could to win. And his invasion was so destructive, maybe even more destructive than the Mongols was, and this would push back recovery for this region even farther. After the Timurid Empire that came from Tamerlane's rule was eventually overthrown, the Safavid Persians would move in, and they forced the Sunni Muslims here to become Shia, which is rare because there's very few Shia practicers of Islam compared to how many Sunnis there are. The citizens here revolted against this and they were executed for it because even though this was seen as a religious right to be free and under some of the past emperors, it was not the case here because a thing about the Mongols is they're actually very famous for their religious tolerance, so much so that they even would go on to place some of their rulers in other countries and convert them so that they could have like spiritual and government control over their region. And so for ages... The region that is now Azerbaijan was used to being able to practice whatever it wanted, but the Safavid Persians do not like that, and they force Shia Muslim beliefs on them, and it's still influential to this day, as it is a Shia-majority nation. And then the next major ruler would be Nader Shah. During his campaigns to consolidate power in Iran, Nader Shah extended his influence into the region. He sought to reunify the Iranian territories that had fragmented under the various regional rulers. Nader Shah's forces conquered the Caucasian mountains in the early 1700s and brought the entire region under his control. Shah began to centralize his government power in the region, and he furthered stability in 1732 when he signed the Treaty of Resht with the Ottoman Empire. This established a temporary border between the two empires, and this treaty continued to have implications for the boundaries of the Caucasus and its relation with neighboring powers because this would kind of be the early basis for the borders we see today where Azerbaijan and Armenia are kind of like the southern cutoff for the Caucasus regions as you get close to the other nations of the Middle East. But there was also another significant ruler in the 1700s that was Aga Muhammad. He was famous for the way he tried to unify power and really pushed the government to advance but this lasted only until 1797 when he was assassinated. However, he established the validity of the Qajar dynasty that would last even after his reign, and this would kind of last until the mid-1800s, despite all the things that are about to happen. Those things being the First and Second Russo-Persian War, which were fought from 804 to 1813, and then 1826 to 1828, respectively. And both of them shared the same result, which is Russian victory. Russia was able to take over the entire Caucasus region and now had full hegemony over anyone living here. And rule under the Russian Empire was interesting. The Russian Empire commanded a very restrictive regime, but this came with extreme industrial and economic growth for the Caucasus. Later in the 1800s, oil was discovered in Azerbaijan 
But since they were under the Russian Empire, there would be absolutely no benefit for the Azerbaijani except for just an increase in trade coming into their region. But this oil money would not go back to them. It would go straight to the Russian Empire. And eventually, the Azeri were able to gain access to their oil fields, and this made the country much more prosperous. It led to huge amounts of population growth and a lot of expansion. The most important of this would be railroads being built to connect most of the nation in the early 1900s. And it also allowed for railroads to be built to Russia to help things be transported between these two significant nations in the region. And as time went on and the economy of the nation continued to grow, there began to be a divide between the ethnic classes within the region. The Russians seem to have enacted a policy that heavily favored the ethnic Armenians in the region, and this brought them into direct conflict with the Azeri. This led to the Armenian Tartar Massacre. This saw the destruction of over 100 villages of both people groups and resulted in over 10,000 casualties overall. The fighting between them was stimulated by the fact that not only was there political differences being pushed by the Russian Empire, but there was just this general thing that comes up a lot throughout history, which is when, let's say I'm American, and in Canada, there was huge exclaves of ethnic Amerian, Americans. Of course, this is a weird example because of America, but just go with it. There's always tending to be a clash over that. It happens all the time with this region, and it's kind of the first time we see it here because anything that has to do with these Eastern Slavs and Central Asia, it's a huge thing. There's huge clashes between Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan over ethnic ex exclaves. It's happening a lot in Eastern Europe right now because Russia obviously sees the ethnic collections of Russians in Ukraine, and we know how that's going. And then this also is happening here, where Armenians are living in Azerbaijan territory of ethnic Armenian descent, and it's caused clashes to happen. So this is kind of the first time we really see this spark up between these two. And from here on out, the tensions between them remain very, very high. So not long after this was the March Days Massacre, which occurred in 1918. It was spurred because the Armenians living in Baku, the capital, heard about the killing of Armenians happening by the Turkish, and thus the Armenians began systematically killing Azeris because of their Turkic descent. And by the end of it, thousands of Azeris lay dead, murdered in cold blood. And this one always hurts my head because, listen, the Armenian genocide happened. 100% happened. It's one of the worst things in history is how unknown what happened in the Armenian genocide is, even though we know very heavily what happened. It's just not publicized the right way because of the fact that Turkey is a big, powerful nation has been able to wipe it away. It's one of the worst things that's happened in history. It's a terrible, multi-million, casually creating genocide. It's terrible. But I just don't get how the Armenian genocide could occur, 1915, 1916, from the Turks to the Armenians, and then the Armenians could just instantly go and cause obviously on a smaller scale, but still an ethnic cleansing slash genocide that happens to the Azeri. It just doesn't make sense to me at all. But, you know, times were tough, and it's just... Oy. <laughs> oy, oy, oy. And, of course, this would not be the end of this, as later in 1918, the Islamic army of the Caucasus, under the Turkish, started to invade and kill Armenians in the region once again. So it's just blood back and forth for no reason. And then the final major thing that happened in 1918 is actually the first declaration of independence being made by Azerbaijan, but this did not last. The only thing that's very significant here is actually declaring themselves as Azerbaijan, as opposed to being any other name, Caucasian Albania, the Caucasus. This is the first time that internationally Azerbaijan is claiming itself as Azerbaijan. But as I said, this did not last because Russian slash Soviet control was reestablished in 1920 and things got very, very dark by the 1930s. And the Great Purge is a name given 
to the Soviet period that was under Stalin, where suspected enemies of state were killed by the thousands. And then that would roll right into World War II, which saw almost 100 million tons of Azeri oil be given to the Soviets in support of the war effort. And that was on top of the 400,000 soldiers who would go from Azerbaijan to fight on the front lines alongside the Soviets. So just a lot of violence in the 1900s, lots of genocides and murder and things that are just sickening. But the Azeris are sometimes victims of it, sometimes they're committing it. And there's a whole lot of war that they it just happened to have fall in their lap because nobody blames anyone in this region for starting World War II, but they get pulled into it because of alliances and all sorts of things like that. And it's just a very dark time. And things don't even let up because in the 1960s there was a huge oil crash and this oil crash ended up causing the economy to take a really heavy downturn. But the fact that Azerbaijan was under the Soviet Union did help them with this, and that's a thing that you very rarely say about being under the Soviet Union, is because of the fact that Azerbaijan was industrialized so heavy, it was able to kind of get itself back on its feet eventually. And that was because of the railroads and the fact that Azerbaijan was a major manufacturing powerhouse for the Soviets. And things would start to continue to get a little better because once the rights were changed within the Soviet Union because of the Glasnost and Plintsvika policies. This allowed for the region of Nagorno-Karabakh to become violent. This is an ethnically Armenian region that was encapsulated into the borders of Azerbaijan when the Soviets were drawing borders for these two different regions. But because of the fact that Soviet rule was so restrictive and there was so much going on under the Stalinist regime, there wasn't an ability for these people to start to really fight each other. And once this freedom started to come, it allowed for a referendum to be called by the people living in Garo-Karabakh to vote for independence slash autonomy from Azerbaijan. And this happens in 1988 and instantaneously starts a war. And I think that happens during this war, right in the middle of it, because this war was fought from 1988 to 1994, is in 1991, independence for Azerbaijan was achieved and ends up turning this clash happening with Armenia into a full-on war. So the first Nagorno-Karabakh war, as I said, was fought from 1988 to 1994, and it resulted in the death of 20,000 people and the displacement of 1 million more. But after years of fighting, independence was eventually achieved for the Nagorno-Karabakh region that was backed by Armenia. Armenia would begin to occupy the region despite it legally being part of Azerbaijan. This displaced thousands of Azeri who knew they would face mistreatment under the Armenians. And over the next few years, Armenians changed the towns of Nagorno-Karabakh to have Armenian names instead of Azeri ones, and they began heavily populating the towns, cities, and other parts with Armenians as opposed to Azeri, and this led to, of course, more great migrations out of the region. And, and a thing we also need to talk about for this war is the Koljali Massacre. This occurred in 1992 and saw the deaths of between 300 and 600 Azeris, and this occurred during the first war and was justified as a quote-unquote war tactic, but it is 1,000% the indiscriminate killing of innocent people because it was a town that just got bombed and shot through and all sorts of things like this, and it's very tough. So this war ends and things get shaky because now Russia and Turkey start to grow their interest in the region. Russia starts to throw its support behind Armenia, and Turkey starts to throw its support behind the ethnic Turkic ones, the Azeri, and this causes things to escalate as we'll see very soon. But despite all this, there was one great leader that came into power in the late 90s and early 2000s, and his name was Haider Aliyev. He started to push a lot of reforms that would kind of help stabilize the economy that was struggling. He wanted to expand more rights to the people, kind of wanted to really distance himself from the Soviet era. But things would not stay on this path because his son is the next 
to gain full control of this country. That is Ilham Aliyev. And he directly inherits power from his father. His father backed him, and he becomes the most powerful man in the country. And then in 2009, the Constitution was changed so that term limits would be removed and the press would have no rights. And this has pretty much allowed Ilham, and this has pretty much allowed Ilham Aliyev to maintain power ever since. And he continues to win election after election where nobody can really challenge him because he restricts the press. He only puts good things out about himself. And he definitely limits the ability for other parties to run against him. And while all this is going on, things are starting to get very heated up between the countries that have interest in this power in this region, mainly Turkey and Russia, because Turkey this whole time started to help fund slash send things over to Azerbaijan that directly had to do with military development, because in this period, Azerbaijan increased its military spending by several folds. And it ends up spending six times more on its military than Armenia does. And this allows us to be very, very developed when it comes to warfare. And on top of this, Turkey starts directly sending drones and airstrike drones to Azerbaijan. And this is when things get very, very tense. So in September of 2020, Azerbaijan used the brand new military weapons from Turkey to launch the attacks on Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh. This surprise attack allowed the Azerbaijani forces to push almost all of the Armenian forces to the border. And then from, here, the Az- then from here, the Azerbaijanis started to push forward their offensive by using drone strikes and tanks that were given to them by Turkey, all the way to the city of Shusha, which is very close to the capital of Ngaro-Karabakh and is the second largest cities. Once this happened, the Armenians actually surrender, and this ends the second war. And the meeting that officially ended it saw a lot of change happen for the region. Nagorno-Karabakh falls under full Azerbaijani control, and the meeting was brokered by Russia, and it came with specific stipulations. There is a region of Nagorno-Karabakh that will remain under ethnic Armenian control, but that land specifically will have 2,000 Russian peacekeeper soldiers stay in it at all times, and then Turkey will send peacekeeping troops to the Azerbaijani-occupied region to maintain stability. Now, truth is, things are not great here. The tensity between these two is very, very present, and neither one wants either to have the Nagorno-Karabakh region. Azerbaijan's whole argument is that it's within their borders. They feel it's theirs. They've developed it, all sorts of things like that. Armenia has the ethnic claim where it is a majority Armenian region, and they feel that their people are the ones that should have right in government, so it should be Armenian slash independent, all sorts of things like that. So it's very, very, very disputed and goes back and forth, but this is the thing that's kind of in the nightly news for them if developments are happening here. And of course we see the thing we're starting to see around the world, which is this is kind of an old head argument. This is something that, you know, students and people who are coming into their young adulthood don't care about as much. They much more care about their right to get their jobs and pay their own rent and handle things that are more personal than they do for their own country and for the overall ethnicity they are because people are trying to move away from just fully identifying with what you were born as and more who you are that's a very new generation thing and that's the thing the world has been trying to develop forever but it's starting to really catch now where everyone in my generation a little younger a little older we all kind of want to move away from this very tribalism focused way of life and move towards you know interpersonal relations and very self-focused stuff so this is a tense situation where the government of course which is ran by old heads like Ilham. 100% want things to go their way, and the governments of both countries are making this very tense. But when it comes to the everyday Azeri or Armenian, it's much more of a thing that they're trying to get through rather than this deep, passionate fight. 
for the younger crowd, that is, because there is still a lot of people of the older crowd, the middle-aged crowd, all that, that have protested over Armenia being able to have any occupied region after the war, all sorts of things like this. So it can be very, very tense at times on all levels for these countries, but the hope is that eventually this is negotiated and can go away because it is just costing lives very frequently. And recently there has been some great tension between Azerbaijan and Iran over the new region that Azerbaijan is occupying. This region isn't far from the border with Iran, and it is a spot for railway crossings. This is that part of Azerbaijan, if you look at it on a map, the southwestern part, which is kind of detached because Armenia kind of cuts right through it, and there's Nagorno-Karabakh region. That northwestern part is what Iran has beef with because they feel that is threatening to them. They feel that it's a challenge to their ability to travel in and out of the region, and it's created a lot of tensity. So... Iran has begun to make the argument that Azerbaijan is limiting its ability to send goods north to countries like Georgia and Russia and other trade partners, but Azerbaijan denies this, and Azerbaijan has actually threatened to expand its control in the occupied territory with force, and Iran has also made threats in favor of backing Armenia. So, very, very tense here once again, and it goes even deeper because Azerbaijan not only has backing from Turkey, but also from Israel, and then Armenia has Iran and Russia, so it's just layers and layers, so it can get very tense here. As I speak now, things aren't horrible in the region, but it can get very, very tense overnight, so everyone just needs to kind of keep their eyes out for this and hope for the best. And with that, that gets us to the present, where things are interesting in Azerbaijan. There's a very tense feeling in the air where people just don't like what's going on. They don't love the ups and downs they're having to deal with. They don't love the fact that war is kind of always looming over them, especially with foreign powers being involved, like Russia, Iran, Turkey, all having their own interests. It's tough for the Azeris, but they are still pushing forward. They're still holding on to what makes them who they are. And that is not the only thing going on here. There's, of course, the internal struggle, which is political, freedom-wise, and civil rights-wise. This country is not high-ranking. It doesn't give its people a lot of rights or freedoms here. The president has been in power for a long time. He continues to hold power of the country like it's his own to run, like he's a king, and he rigs elections, all sorts of things like that. And that's always just one of the dead center ones where you kind of put a country in a box of not politically free, is that the people can't easily vote out a president or a prime minister or whatever. So it's very tough here for them. And, you know, that's the political struggle. But Economy-wise, this country is starting to make a turn upwards because over the past 30 years, it's continued to privatize more and more parts of its economy and allow for natural gas and oil to become roughly 80% of the economy, which has made them much more prosperous than they used to be. So despite a couple layers of problems with Azerbaijan and what's going on in it right now, there are some things looking up, which is the economy. The people are starting to become happier. There is stability coming in that section, but politically, geopolitically, things have been tense for a long time. So, you know, it's very tough here. And that gets us to the very end where I always like to leave it with kind of a takeaway or a mindset. And with Azerbaijan, that's going to be be resilient. I'm going to be very simple with this one just because Azerbaijan has, for most of its history, been stepped on and run over by other empires. And the only way it's gotten through is resiliency and having a lot of it being very resilient, being very resistant to anything that's tried to push them off their path. And it's been very tough for them. And even today, they kind of have this weird occupation issue where they're still kind of a pawn on a chessboard for larger powers. But despite this, the Azerbaijani have not given up. They've never let their culture go. They've never been perfectly okay with being taken over. They've always tried to forge their own identity. They've claimed independence many times, and now they're holding on to it. 
And so much so that they'll literally fight a war with their neighbor over a region that may or may not be theirs. It's very tense, it's very prideful, but it is also very resilient. And the thing you can pull from that is to take that into your own life because the Azerbaijanis are very heavily holding on to what they believe is theirs. They will fight for it, many will die for it, many have died for it, no matter what it is. I say in a kinder light, do that with yourself as well. You know, hold on to yourself tight, brace yourself, and whatever path you're trying to go on, especially if it's an ambitious one, there's going to be a lot of cold winds trying to blow you off of it. There's going to be forces that try and lift you away. You have to be resilient. You have to plant your feet. You have to be able to say, I'm willing to take anything that comes with this because this is my path, because that is what Azerbaijan has done to survive thus long and will continue to do. So I say do the same with you. Hold on tight, be resilient, and whatever comes, just try and let it brush off of you because if you let it get you down, you could eventually lose sight of what you're going for, and that is the only way to truly lose is to give up on yourself. So hold on tight, be resilient, and more. And with that, that does get us to the end. So I very much hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you're well. I hope this found you well, and I hope you learned a little bit about Azerbaijan. This is a country that most people probably couldn't point out on a map, but on top of that, couldn't spell, and then on top of that, couldn't tell me a thing about it but you guys are not the same we're learning stuff we're figuring this out we're going country by country and we're trying to really dig up the roots of the ones that have been buried so i'm very glad you all are here and just wanted to say thank you so once again thank you so much for being here i hope you enjoyed and my name is reese karlinski this is young history and that was azerbaijan you guys have a good one